in Ukraine and believers who are in Russia who are suffering immensely. And so the Lord began to work in our hearts as a church, and we determined that over the next couple of weeks, we would set apart ourselves to ask God what he would have us to do as a church. And so last Sunday, you got these little cards. We are calling these grace-enabled gospel-giving cards. And each of you got one. Now I'm going to have the ushers come, and they're going to hand them back out because if you're like me, you forgot yours at home. And so we want to make sure you have one. So everybody should have one of these cards. And I asked you last Sunday to take a week, everybody, moms, dads, uh, every uh, young person in a home, to just pray about what God would have you to give to Project Above and Beyond. This is us giving what we don't have so that people who don't have can have a provision from the Lord. You say, well, how does that work? It works this way. You go before the Lord and you say to the Lord, Lord, I don't have what I want to give. I'm giving to my church. This is above our tithe. This is above our offerings. I don't have what I want to give. But if you will provide what I want to give, then I want to be the channel through which you give it. And so that's called grace-enabled gospel giving Because this is not giving that is going for us. This isn't going to cover any of our expenses as a church. This is grace-enabled gospel giving that is going to help believers in the 22 different churches that Pastor Minka is working with. And we noted that if 100 people in our congregation just said, Lord, if you'll provide $100 a month over the next four months, if you provide it, I'll give it. And that may mean that you have to give up some Starbucks during the course of a week or some of you that work in some kind of a place where you receive gratuity. You may say on a certain day of the week, all the gratuity that I get today is going to this. Or you get some extra money. Maybe an unexpected uh, money comes in and you would say, God, that's your provision. So this is, we're, we're not asking you to put your name on this. This is just you coming to God and saying, God, this is what I desire to give. And if you provide it, I'll give it. And we're just asking you to fill that out. And so during the course of the service, please do that. At the end of my message, I'm going to have you pass the cards into the middle, and we'll have the ushers come back. So, Jonathan, you want to have your your men ready to go, and we'll pick them up. Uh, Maybe you say, I'm really not ready to do that today. You can drop it off at the table on your way out, or you can bring it next Sunday. Next Sunday, we are going to take a special offering something we never do here. We're going to take a special offering. It's our Easter offering, and it is going for Project Above and Beyond, which is our Ukrainian Slavic uh, outreach. And so if you come next Sunday uh, and God moves in your heart, we would love for you to take your spare change or anything you feel that you could give on the Lord's Resurrection Day so that the hope of the gospel can go to people who desperately need it and who are in the midst of losing everything that this earth has to offer. So we'll do that next Sunday. But we'll, uh, if you have a card, we want you to fill those out and, uh, and pass those in at the end of our service. I'm going to ask you to take your Bible to the 8th Psalm this morning. And in just a moment, I'm going to ask uh, our AV guys back there to put up a slide, but I'm going to ask them to hold until I ask you this question. I have a question for you this morning as we get ready for Passion Week. If you had to think of the most 
famous footprint that was ever made on the, by, by somebody who lived on the earth. And, I'm, and let's exclude Jesus, okay? Let's leave Jesus out of this. What footprint would you have in your mind? Okay, I'm going to give you just 30 seconds to think of this, all right? Do you have a footprint that you would have in mind? All right, now I'm going to ask the AV guys to move to the next slide, and I'm going to show you the footprint, all right? It's actually a boot print. How many of you recognize that boot print? Okay, if you know what that boot print is, hold your hand way high, all right? You know exactly what that boot print is. All right, that's about half of you. That boot print was made in 1969. Does that have any, does that give you any clue? It was made on July 22nd, 1969, and it was made by a guy named Neil Armstrong. And, and he made that footprint when he stepped on the surface of the moon for the very first time. That's the very first footprint ever made on the surface of the moon. And from what I understand, that boot print is still there. It's still in that condition. Now, how many of you were alive when that boot print was made? How many of you were alive? Okay, hold your hands up, okay? You were alive. Okay, I was alive, right? Hold your hand up high. I want everybody, okay, look around, all right? These are, this is, these are the pillars of the church right here, okay? <laughs> Just so you know. All right, you were alive. Now, do you realize that, that half a billion people watched this footprint being made? It was one of the very first times that uh, something of this nature was televised, and uh, half a billion people watched this footprint being made. So here's my next question. How many of you watched that televised event? You remember watching that, all right? There's about three or four of you. No, there's more than that. All right, that's where all the wisdom resides. <laughs> that's where the wisdom in the church is. You say, well, why in the world on Palm Sunday would you put a picture of Neil Armstrong's boot print that he left on the moon? And I think that's an excellent question. And I have a sort of a question for you. How did a race that found its way to the moon lose its way so drastically on our own planet? David is going to bring that question to bear in the middle of this psalm when he asks this question. He says this in verse 4, What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? I mean, David, David in the middle of this psalm, asks the same question that I asked. He just asks it in biblical language. God, what is it about man that matters so much to you? Why is it that man is always on your mind, and why is it that he is always in your heart? Centuries before David lived, Job had the exact same question. Job asked this very same question uh, about this very idea. Lord, why is it that you are constantly caring about God? And so I want to begin this morning answering that question by looking at this psalm because it is quoted two times in our New Testament 
and it is quoted on the Sunday that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. And I want to make that connection for us as we look at a meditation on Messiah at the beginning of Passion Week. All right, so here's the first thing I want you to notice as David asked that question. David is recognizing something. There is a recognition of man's significance. He, he actually understands that there is something very significant about man, and, and he is observing this in a profound consideration. He says this in verse 3, When I look at your heavens... The work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. David is actually looking at something and he is drawing a conclusion. He is observing something with a profound consideration. He is observing creation. And and what he notices about creation is that it has a singular origin and a spectacular design. This profound consideration basically is David looking at the moon and looking at the stars and recognizing that they actually belong to God. They were made by God, they belong to God, and they are sustained by God. This is one of the reasons why we think that maybe this was written early on in David's life as a young shepherd boy, maybe out watching his father's flocks, and maybe on a starry night, he's sitting out maybe on a hillside looking up into the beauty of the sky and and looking at that night sky and marveling at the spectacular design of God's creation. And so he actually comes now to a question, and it's not one that I expected. When I see David looking at the moon and the stars, and I see the very words that come out of his mouth in Psalm 19. The heavens declare something. The heavens are announcing the glory of God. That's what I expect the question to be about. When David is considering the heavens, I expect the question to be about God. But the question is actually about man. David says, I have a question as I look at all of this. When I see the beauty of what you have created, I want to know why this creature, the Son of Man, is so important to you. I want to know why you make so much of him and why you set your heart upon him. That is exactly what Job asked, as we noted earlier in Job chapter 7, verse 17. That's really a stunning question. And to be sure that we are on the right track, to make sure that we are actually tracking with David, there is actually something that follows this question that confirms that we really are on the right track, that that David is really, in fact, marveling at the significance of something that is even more important to God than his creation. And it's the creature that he made in his own image. And you can see what David does in verses 5 through 8. This creature that God made, David says, you made him a little lower than yourself. In verse 5, you made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. You crowned him with a share of your own glory and honor. You gave him dominion and authority over all the works of your hands. You see that in verse 6? Look down at verse 6. 
in your Bible. You have given him dominion over all the works of your hands. Now, if you don't mind writing in your Bible, you may want to draw a little line from the word works of your hands, from that little phrase, back up to verse 3, to the work of your fingers. When David said, I have given this or you have given this man dominion over all the works of your hands, what works of God's hand had David just been looking at? And the answer is the stars and the moon. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you think for a moment, as David wrote this, that he ever imagined there would come a day thousands of years later where one of the members of the race he is marveling at would physically put his foot on the moon that he was looking at. It's stunning. David says, you made him a little lower than yourself. You crowned him with glory and honor. You gave him dominion and authority over all the works of your hand, and you placed every sphere of creation and every creature in those spheres under his authority. Look at verse Six, the last part of verse 6, you have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the, of the sea. David says, all of that, all of that is under man's dominion. Years ago, I was out west and I, I went to eat at one of my favorite restaurants, one of the finest dining establishments in the entire uh, United States of America. And it's called, what do you think it's called? In-N-Out Burger. (laughs) There was a pregnant pause there. I just wanted to see if you would resonate with that. How many of you have ever eaten at an In-N-Out Burger? Can I see your hands? Oh, the rest of you are going to have to wait till you get to heaven. I think they're going to have the marriage supper catered by In-N-Out Burger. And I was eating there one day, and I was enjoying my, my burger, and this guy comes up to me, and he worked there. And, um, and he was a sort of retired guy. We, en- we ended up talking, and I found out that he, he had retired. He got lonely, and he decided to come down and just volunteer to work at In-N-Out Burger. And so that's what he did. And so we were chatting, and I said to him, what did you do before you retired? And he said to me, I trained whales. Apparently, he worked for SeaWorld, and uh, he was part of the team that trained Shamu the whale. Remember Shamu the whale? And so here I am eating my burger, talking to a guy who trained whales, and I had a question for him. And it wasn't about where I could get more ketchup for my fries. I wanted to know how you trained a whale. How do you train a whale? Not that I plan to do that, but if I ever found myself needing to train a whale, I want to know how you did that. You know, he said, you take a stick, a long stick, and you put it at the bottom of the pool, and you get on the other side of that stick, and you hold something that the whale likes to eat, and when he swims over, you give him that treat. And you just keep raising the the bar a little bit at a time until eventually you have that whale jumping out of the pool over the bar. I thought to myself, I never in a hundred years would have ever thought of that. Did you ever think David thought of that when he wrote that God would give to this creature dominion 
over everything, even the things that pass along the deepest paths of the sea. This is a stunning thing. So David is recognizing the significance of man, but that brings us to the next question, and that is why is man so significant to God? I mean, we see that David is right. Here is a creature that, that God honors even more than any other part of his creation, but what is the reason for this? And the reason for this is found in verse 1 and in verse 9. Look at verse 1 and look at verse 9 of of Psalm 8. And you'll notice something about verse 1 and verse 9. They are almost identical. Here's what it says. O Lord, our Lord. So David is addressing the God of Israel, the true God who is the very own God of Israel. So he's talking to somebody that he has personal acquaintance with and that he's in a relationship with. O God, our God. That's the idea. How majestic is your name in all the earth. And you can see the very same thing in verse 9. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. Now look back to to verse 1 and you'll see that there's a line in verse 1 that's not in verse 9. And it goes like this. You have set your glory above the heavens. David says, look, you have this awesome name. There is this majestic name that you have, but it is inaccessible to us. We will never know that name. We will never know who is that person. We will never know who you are and what you are like because your person, your character, your name is above the earth. This is not just that it is the greatest name on the earth. Basically, David is acknowledging that God exists and he exists in a realm that we don't have access to. You have put your glory above the heaven, but you want your name to be known. The idea of name there isn't just God's name like God or Elohim or Yahweh. It's the idea of who he is and what he's like. David says, you want your entire creation to know who you are and what you are like. But the issue is that you exist in a realm that is not accessible to the people who you desire to have that knowledge. And so how did God deal with this? Well, you know the story. God decided to make a creature in his own, what, image. And he decided to crown that creature with his very own honor and his very own glory. And he decided to put that creature on the earth and to give him authority and dominion so that that creature created in God's image could rule over the earth in God's stead and that all of creation would experience the benevolent love of its creator when they experienced the benevolent rule of this image bearer that God had made in his own image. And when God made our first parents in his own image, he said to them, I want you to fill up the earth with other image bearers who will know me and who will worship me and who will serve me and who will celebrate who I am 
and what I'm like. And you know, folks, it doesn't take very long, does it, for us to realize that something went radically wrong with that plan. I mean, the earth has been filled up with image bearers. Some 7 billion of us live on this planet. So that part of the plan worked. But the part of the plan that didn't work is is the magnification of God's name, the glorification of God's person. Somehow that part of the plan went radically wrong so that there are entire segments of the 7 billion people who live on this planet who have become convinced that God doesn't even exist. We call those people what? Atheists. And then there are billions of other people who believe that the idea of God is a great idea, but they don't believe that there's just one God. They believe in a multiplicity of gods. And even among the people, the few people that have come to conclude that there is one God, they have come to radically bad ideas about who he is and what he's like. How did all of this happen? And that's the third thing that you see in Psalm 8. You see it in verse 2. There is a response to all of this. When God said, I'm going to create an image bearer in my own image, and I'm going to put him on the earth, and through him I am going to charge him to fill up the earth with other image bearers and to make my name known to them so that men might glorify me, there was a response to this. And you can see the response in verse 2. David says, Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes. And then he says, This strength is intended to still the enemy. And he's going to name the enemy as the avenger. So something happened to the plan and the plan was disrupted, and the plan was destroyed by an ancient enemy of God, and you know his name. That ancient enemy is called the Avenger, and he shows up throughout the entire story of the Bible as the devil, as the accuser. So how is God going to resolve what this enemy has done? How is God going to do that? So there is opposition from an ancient enemy, but now there is also a resolution from a surprising source. What's going to stop this enemy? What's going to still his voice? What's going to stop his his activity against God? And and the answer is in verse 2. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength. And when those babies... And infants use that strength, it will defeat the enemy. Which brings us to this question. Who are the, who are the babies and what is the strength? Right? I mean, this is, the whole, this is where the whole psalm rests. David says, I want to know why you care about man. I want to know why you are so attentive to the son of man. And part of the answer is because out of those men and out of that son, I have ordained a strength that is going to stop the enemy. So who are the children and what is the strength? And to get the answer to that question, we have to now go to two places in our New Testament. 
And so let me have you turn to the first of those places as we see the ramifications of all of this. And the first place is in Matthew chapter 21. So let me have you turn in your Bible to Matthew 21. Because in Matthew 21, we are going to discover the strength. Remember we said we need to find out who the children are, and then we need to find out what the strength is that God has given to them and put in their mouths. And so we need to find out what the strength is. And so Matthew 21 records the events that took place on the Sunday that we are celebrating today, the Sunday that began the greatest week in the history of the human race. When you find a descendant of David coming up from Galilee, making the trip to Jerusalem, one of the three times in the Jewish calendar year when all of Israel would come together. In fact, this week was the most sacred of the weeks. It was the week of Passover. And people would come from all over Israel, but not just from Israel. For this week, they would come from all over the world. They would come from the Mediterranean region. And, and Jerusalem would go from being a large city of 30,000 people to a massive throng of 180,000 people. So you can see this is a very, very massive moment. And Jesus gets almost to Jerusalem, and he spends the night at the home of two sisters and a brother named Lazarus that he had just raised from the dead. And people came to see him there, and they were amazed, and they were reminded of the miracle that he had done in raising Lazarus to the, to, from the dead. And, and the priests and the, and the Pharisees heard about this, and they began to say, look, we've got to put both of them to death because of what's going on here. And the next morning, Jesus gets up and he finishes the journey. And just a few miles before he gets to Jerusalem, he stops everything and he says to his disciples, I need a donkey. Now think about that request. It comes at a very odd time. The journey is almost done. He's well rested from a night of rest. He's not injured. Why in the world would you ask for a donkey at the last few miles of your journey when you're, when you're fresh and you're not injured. Clearly, Jesus was up to something. And Matthew makes sure you know what he's up to. He says this is to fulfill an ancient prophecy that we read earlier in our service this morning in Zechariah 9.9 when the ancient prophet said, you will recognize your king, you will recognize your Messiah when he comes riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. And that is exactly what Jesus is doing. And the crowd got it. You say, well, how do you know the crowd got it? Because of what they said next. They said this, Hosanna. The word Hosanna means this. God, save us. If you think about that term, that's what that term means. It is a cry to God for salvation, for deliverance. So here are people, they have just been reminded that the person on that donkey was able to raise somebody from the dead. He's riding into Jerusalem, and as he comes up to Jerusalem, the entire throng starts crying out, Son of David, save us. They are, they are crying out for deliverance, and they are so 
enthralled at this that John, in his account, says they were ready to make him their king. And as this crowd is shouting out this amazing cry, it starts, it's so loud that it shakes Jerusalem. And the people who are hearing it in Jerusalem are stirred. The word there is the word you would use for an earthquake. I mean, the foundations of who they were as a nation were being shaken by what these people were crying. And they want to know something. They want to know who this person is. Who is this person that you are crying out? Who is this son of David that you are ready to crown to be our king? And the answer is shocking. It is the prophet from Nazareth, Jesus. And then Jesus comes into the city. And the first thing he does is he goes to the temple. And he does two things at the temple. He cleanses it. He walks in and he turns over the tables of those religious leaders who were, were, ex, were charging exorbitant prices. They were gouging the people of God, selling them ritually pure sacrifices at exorbitant prices or changing out their Roman money for temple money at exorbitant exchange rates. And Jesus overturns their tables and he says, you have turned a house that belongs to me, my father's house, into a den of thieves. This was supposed to be a house of prayer for all the nations. And then he does something else. He doesn't just cleanse the temple of its corruption. He opens the temple to people who had not had access. The blind and the lame. They come to Jesus and he heals them. Don't don't miss that little detail because that's exactly what the Old Testament prophet said would happen when Messiah would come. When Messiah came, the blind would see and the lame would leap for joy. And it's happening right there in the temple. And if you were listening to Pastor Mike read the story, the high priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, instead of being overjoyed, they were incensed. And what made them so angry, what threw them over the top, is what the children who had gathered around Jesus were saying. They were repeating what they heard their parents say on the road earlier that day. They were saying, that one, that's the son of David. That's the one who's going to deliver us. And the scribes looked at Jesus and they said, do you hear what these kids are saying about you? And I love Jesus' answer. He said, yes. And then he had a question of his own. Have you never read? That's like asking a librarian, do you know about books? Have you never read? And he quotes Psalm 8. Out of the mouths of children, you have ordained strength. You know what the strength is? The strength is these little children are looking at the champion that God sent to destroy the enemy. That's the strength. The strength isn't in the children. The strength is in the champion that they're identifying. You want to know what the strength is? The strength is Jesus of Nazareth, God's champion. So then who are the children? And to get the answer to that question, we have to go to the last place this morning we'll look, and that's in the book of Hebrews chapter 8. I'm sorry, the book of Hebrews chapter 2. 
So let me have you turn to Hebrews 2 this morning. And we're going to notice something about this descendant of David who is now the strength that will stop the enemy. He's the strength of God. And we read something in verse 5. Look at verse 5. It was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. In other words, the writer of Hebrews is saying, listen, all of this creation is one day going to be subjected to a son of Adam, and it's not to angels. And then he quotes Psalm 2, or Psalm 8 rather. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor. You put everything in subjection under his feet. Now, if you're reading the writer of Hebrews, you're asking yourself, now, wait a minute, we're looking around, and nothing in this creation is subjected yet to Jesus. And that's exactly what comes next. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. But at the present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we do see something. We don't see the subjection of the earth yet, but there is something that we do see that has already happened. We see him. Do you see that? We see him. Who? The one who for a little while was made lower than the angels, and if you want to know who that was, namely Jesus. And we see that he has been crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for every man. Why? Look at the next verse, verse 10. It was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. And then in verse 12, this champion speaks. And this is what he says. I will tell of your name to my brothers. Remember Psalm 8, verse 1 and verse 9? How majestic is your name in all of the earth? God wants his name to be told, and here is someone who is telling that name to his brothers. And that person is Jesus. In the midst of, your, of, of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And then he says in verse 13, I will put my trust in him. Behold, I and the children God has given me. So let's put it all together. In Psalm 8, verse 2, there is an enemy. That enemy is going to be stilled by a strength that is identified and articulated by children. In Matthew 21, we discovered that that strength is actually in a person named Jesus, the son of David, who is going to deliver people from their sins. And by the end of that week, he would have delivered the human race from far more than just the Romans, correct? They were ready to put an Israel crown on his head. By the end of the week, he wore a crown of thorns. And that crown on his head symbolized the curse. And by wearing that crown, he liberated the entire earth. And the writer of Hebrews says, that hasn't happened yet. The liberating the earth hasn't happened yet. But something has happened. We see the liberator, Jesus, who has come. And he has brothers. And he calls those brothers the children that God gave to him. What in the world? is that all about? 
It's about your destiny. This little title, Son of Man, shows up in one other place in your Bible. It shows up in Daniel 7 where the prophet Daniel is taken into the very throne room of heaven and there on a throne sits someone who is more ancient than days. And there is someone who appears in front of him. He comes in clouds and his title is the Son of Man. That's who this person is. And to this person, the Son of Man, the person on the throne, the Ancient of Days, gives to him glory and honor and dominion and a kingdom, and then he gives him something else. He gives him people. He gives him a people. And to those people, he gives a share in that kingdom. And that's why Jesus in Hebrews chapter 2 is describing the people that the Ancient of Days promised to give to him, and he's saying to them, they're just not my friends, they're my brothers, and they're the children who have a full right in what I have done. That's you, and that's me. You say, okay, what does that have to do with us today? And here's what it has to do with us today. You have been redeemed by that strength. You know that name. You know that name. And through that name, there is not a sin on the earth that cannot be forgiven. There's not a sin on the earth that can't be forgiven. You say, Pastor Sam, you have no idea what I've done with my life. You have, you have no idea how badly I've messed it up. You know a name that can forgive all of that. You say, you don't have any clue how I've messed my life up. You know a name that can restore all that the avenger has taken. You know a name who can forgive. You know a name who can restore. You know a name who can refresh. You know a name who can replenish anything that has been broken by sin. You know that name. And you know what? God wants that name to be known by your neighbor. God wants that name to be known by your coworker. God wants that name to be known by the person whose life has been so broken by sin that they don't have anywhere to turn. They have nowhere to go. And he put that name in your mouth. He put that strength in your mouth. And he wants you to do what those children were doing in the temple. He wants you to point to Jesus, and he wants you to say, that's the son of David. That's the one who can forgive. That's the one who can restore. That's the one who can repair. That's the one who can replenish. So let me end this way this morning. There are four things I want to ask you, and then we'll pray. And they're very personal questions. We can't walk away from a text like this and not let the text do its work in our life. So question number one is this. Do you actually believe that David and Matthew and the writer of Hebrews are telling you the truth about Jesus? Do you believe that? I mean, do you believe that what the writers of these texts we've looked at this morning say to you about Jesus is actually true, that he really is the son of David, that he really is the long-awaited Messiah, that when he got on that donkey and rode up the street to Jerusalem, up to the gates of Jerusalem, he really was the one that hundreds of years earlier Zechariah was talking about. Do you believe that? Or is it just religious jargon? 
So question number one, do you believe what the writers of Scripture are telling you about Jesus? That he is the one to whom all the earth will one day be subjected. That he did come to taste death for every man. Do you believe that? Do you believe the writers of Scripture are telling the truth? Question number one. Question number two. Have you received this truth personally? Have you made this truth your very own? For years I pastored in Milwaukee, and uh, we would have an influx of people that would come to church two times a year, Christmas and Easter. And you'd be talking to them, and they would tell you this. They would say, I am a creaster. Say, what's a creaster? Somebody comes at Christmas and comes back to check and make sure you're still there at Easter, right? And they would talk this way. And so I'm asking you a question. Are you a creaster or are you a Christian? We would have folks that would visit and they would sit under the preaching of the word and it would take a long time. Sometimes it would take over a year. You know, you'd, you'd kind of, I'd stand at the back sometimes and they'd come out and they would say things like this that kind of let you know that, that they, they didn't realize that this was a Baptist church. They would say, nice mass, Father. And I just learned to say thank you, you know, and they would go on their way and they would come back the next Sunday and then it would take a while and then they would come back and, and, and maybe six to eight months later they would say, hey, Pastor, do you think we could have a cup of coffee? And I always knew what we were going to talk about without fail. And we'd go to a Panera Bread or back there, there was a little place I liked to drink coffee at called Dunn's Coffee. We'd go over to Dunn's and we'd sit down across the table over a cup of coffee. And invariably the conversation would go like this. You know, I have heard the facts of the Christian faith all of my life. I grew up knowing about Jesus and I grew up knowing about what happened at Christmas and I grew up knowing what happened at Easter and I grew up knowing what happened uh, on Sunday morning, Resurrection Sunday, but I never understood that I needed to be forgiven of my sins. I never knew that I needed that personally. You know what was happening? The Spirit of God was helping them understand that what they knew in their head needed to be received in their heart. And maybe there's some of you this morning that are there. It's the greatest thing that could ever happen to you when the Spirit of God begins to slowly tap you on the shoulder and say, you know what? This Christianity thing that you're hearing about, it's really true. And it needs to become true for you. And it doesn't matter how old you are or how young you are or how involved you've been or how deep you're into a ministry, if the Spirit of God is tapping you on the shoulder and saying to you, this is you, you need to embrace this on a personal level. That is the greatest thing that could ever happen to you. Question number three, have you committed to this truth wholly? Are you willing to let this truth dominate your life and reshape your life and reorient your life? Are you willing to lay aside everything to follow Jesus? 
Are you willing to follow the example of our two sisters this morning who were baptized in a public way to say, you know what, I'm going to follow Jesus wherever he leads and whatever it costs. Have you committed to this truth wholly? Or are you using Jesus? Say, well, Pastor, that's kind of rough. Well, I'm, I'm, we're being honest today, right? I mean, I want enough Jesus so that when I need him, he can fix my marriage, he can fix my kids, he can fix my parents, he can fix my life. And Jesus is saying, I don't operate that way. I want to be the Lord of your life. That's what I mean, have you committed wholly to Jesus? And then the final question is this. Are you announcing his name to the people who most need it? It's wonderful that we can come together as believers and celebrate his name and sing about his name and honor his name and sit under the sound of his word every Sunday. But the people who most need this name aren't here this morning. They live in the house next to you. They shop at the same place you shop. They, they sit next to the, the, the chair next to you in the waiting room. They, they work out at your gym. They sit next to you in the college you attend or in the school you go to. They play on your ball team. They are the people who most need to know the name of Jesus, and you are the one who knows that name. It's one thing to know the facts. It's another thing to embrace the facts. It's, it's a wonderful thing to be wholly dominated by those facts. But at some point, that name needs to be coming out of your mouth. You need to go to somebody and say, you know what? I don't, I don't understand. I'm not in your shoes, but I do know this. I know a name. I know a name. And you know that name. And he can change your life. Father, thank you for asking for that donkey 2,000 years ago, riding up to the city of Jerusalem. Lord, we in our mind's eye can just hear the crowds celebrating the identity that they've discovered about you, that you really are the son of David. What a glorious thing to have been crowned their king. Thank you for not allowing them to do that. Thank you for being willing to wear a different crown, a crown of thorns. Thank you for going to a different throne, a cross, so that we could have life, so that we could have forgiveness, and so that we could enjoy the kingdom that your Father gave to you and in grace included us. Lord, if there's somebody here this morning that doesn't know you, I pray that you would work in their heart. Lord, we can't save anybody. We can't even convict anybody. You have to do that work. And we're confident that you've done it this morning in our midst. And we ask for your help and blessing as we take the name that we have come to know and we share it with others. And we'll thank you and praise you for that name, the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ in whose name we pray all of this. Amen.